This is the Digging for Truth podcast, presented by the Associates for Biblical Research, demonstrating the historical reliability of the Bible through archaeological and biblical research. Abraham, the father of faith for Jews, Christians, and Muslims. He was called by God and told to settle in the land of Canaan, where God promised to make him into a great nation, and his descendants would become the nation of Israel. A number of key moments in his life were written about in the Bible. His covenant with God, going to Egypt, having sons when he and his wife Sarah were like 100 years old, and of course when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. In Genesis 25, Abraham gets a short obituary, naming his wives, concubines, and his children. Then it goes on to say in verse 7, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man full of years. And he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Mechpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac. Brian Wendell is here from the Bible Archaeology Report, along with Henry Smith, and we're going to be looking at some of the places and archaeology associated with the life of Abraham. You're not going to find something that says Abraham was here, but Brian (laughs) has a list of a whole bunch of evidence related to where he lived or references to him and the time he lived, which was 3,500 years ago. When was his lifespan, Henry, the chronologist, I'm asking you? Yeah. When is generally his accepted time frame of living. Yeah, you could you there's there's a couple if you take the biblical chronology uh either 2166 he was born or 200 years later depending on the length of the sojourn. So yeah. let's say 2000 BC just so for the four, purpose of an audio 4000 years ago. Yeah, 4000 years ago. Yeah, yeah. exactly. R- roughly then that you know for for people who are used to talking about the different types of ages if if we take a straightforward understanding of Abraham's life he was he would have been born near the tail end of the intermediate bronze age but lived most of his life in the middle bronze age that's kind of the the time frame we're looking from an archaeological perspective when okay. we when we look at this mm-hmm. so what would be the first thing that you have what's on your list? Well, yeah, when I when I did this list, I thought, what are some archaeological finds or archaeological places that are related to Abraham, to the life of Abraham? I mean, he's the great patriarch. He's the father of faith. Very important figure in not only the Old Testament, but also um, what he means for people of faith in the New Testament. And so, uh, one of the things that I put on my list was the city of Ur. Now, what's really interesting, because we're told that uh, that this is where Abraham originally came from. And so there are two ancient cities, actually, because there were multiple cities in the ancient world named Ur. Now we're told that it was Ur of the Chaldeans. Now there are a couple, again, there are a couple of candidate sites that have been put forward. One, Urfa in northern, uh, in, in modern day Turkey, was the center of the Hurrian civilization. And there's another site in Iraq, the Sumerian city of Ur. And what's what's interesting is that today most people would point to that city, the Sumerian city of Ur, over in the east, uh, in in modern day Iraq, as the city where Abraham was from. But 
But Mark Wilson, uh, the great scholar on biblical Turkey, writes, the consensus of an earlier generation was that the Anatolian Ur was Abraham's Ur. When Leonard Woolley discovered the royal cemeteries at Sumerian Ur in 1927, he declared that his finds were worthy of Abraham. And ever since then, the consensus has been the Sumerian Ur over in Iraq is the one. But but there is evidence that that maybe this this city of Ur in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, is the one that was where Abraham was from. Uh, Old Testament professor Tony Cartledge says, some ancient sources suggest the Chaldeans' original home was in Anatolia before they migrated south. And so, um, so that would account for Ur of the Chaldeans. I find it very interesting that when Abraham sends his servant to choose a wife for his son Isaac, he directs him to, quote, go to my country to my own relatives in Genesis 24.10. And his servant goes to the city of Haran, which was in uh, Aram Naharaim, beyond the river, which is this Anatolian region of Ur. Now, he doesn't send him all the way over to modern-day Iraq. He sends him north to the city of Haran, which is in modern-day Turkey, into that region and calls that his own country. So I think that there's evidence for that. Now, um, here's the thing. I would love to be able to say, hey, look at all this archaeological evidence from this city of Ur in modern-day Turkey, but, but we don't have that because a city of two million people covers that site, and so we just don't have a lot of evidence there, but the biblical evidence would seem to indicate that might be the site of Abraham's birthplace. Yeah, that's good, Brian. I think it gives us a couple alternatives because the you know, the account is interesting. When Abraham and his family depart from Ur, it really doesn't give us a sense of how long, it, because it's like they left from Ur and then they stopped and settled in Haran. But it doesn't give you any chronology. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it could be a long journey. It could be a short journey. Now with the Northern view, what is, what are they about 20 miles apart? Something like yep, that. Yeah, they're very close. Right. So they wouldn't travel very long before they stopped in Haran. You know, the the other view, the southern view, was often, well, it was a long journey, and their father was perhaps old, Tara was old, and perhaps he was ill, and then they stopped there and stayed there. That's, you know, again, that's filling in the blanks. So it's very interesting. That wouldn't be a very long trip from Ur to Haran if it's the northern, but it doesn't contradict the biblical text. So it leaves it as 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 an option. Uh, it does force us to go back to the text to make sure we've got it right, and I think that's the important thing exactly. uh, ultimately with that. Luke? Well, I just, for some reason, I haven't heard this before. <laughs> and not that I, I'm not inferring that I know everything, but like I haven't, <laughs> I haven't, I've only ever heard of the Ur in Iraq area. I have not, have not heard of the Northern and that I'm just, now I'm just looking stuff up on my phone. I'm just like, where is that? Where is that? Like, I now want to <laughs> yeah. know more. I know we have to move on, but like, I just, that like, anytime I hear something that's like, oh wait, that does sound more plausible. Like if that's on the way to Heron and, and. Could be, could be. Cause you know, it's, it's, and what Brian, you mentioned about when, uh, where Abraham sends his servant back to, doesn't the text say the city of Nahor? To, and he finds Rebecca for for a wife. This is after Sarah dies. I, I think it says that. 
Now, is that Nahor City or is that a city named Nahor? That makes me think. But Nahor did not come with them when they left to go to Canaan after Terah dies in, uh, in Genesis 11. It's Sarah, Lot, Abraham, and the servants that go to Canaan. Mm-hmm. So that's all very interesting. What does it say? The city of Nahor. I don't mean to be pedantic. It's just it's got my interest going here. Yeah, I would have to look that one up. I'm not sure. Uh, Bron- you you actually had it more precisely correct. The Hebrew of the city is Avram Naharim, but in the ESV it's translated into the city of Nahor. But that's not what the the Hebrew text says. Yeah. Uh, so. It, it really doesn't say the city of Nahor per se. Yeah. So that doesn't give us the answer yeah. either. All right. You want me to keep okay. going here? Yes. Yes. Otherwise we're going to, we're going to start <laughs> trying to solve this problem. <laughs> yeah. What's, what's next on your. Well, Henry, Henry mentioned the city of Haran and that's the next thing on my list. After Abraham left Ur, he settled in Haran for years before he made his way to Canaan. We're told that in Genesis 11 and Acts chapter seven and, and Tal Haran is located on a fertile plain of the Balik River, it's a major tributary of the Euphrates River, and in ancient times, it lay at the junction of a ma- of major trade routes. And what's interesting is that it was a, a worship center for the moon god Sin, and uh, excavations there have unearthed large mud brick buildings that date to the end of the third millennium BC, which some think may have been a predecessor to the temple of Sin. And Abraham's, this is interesting because Abraham's father, Terah, may have worshipped this pagan god there because scripture says that, um, says your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And so we have this major center, Haran, where they came, where a major other god was served. Today, it's, it's famous for its conical beehive-type houses uh, that you see there. And it's, it's a style that's been used in Mesopotamia for thousands of years. But if you look up pictures of them, uh, the ones that you see today are only about 200 years old. But, but again, we have this, uh, this location, Haran, which seems to be mentioned in Scripture. And, and we can go there and we can see that they uh, worshipped a, a, a foreign deity there. And, and that kind of just, again, just a little piece. I, I often say, isn't it interesting? The Bible says that they worshipped other gods and you go to this place and there was a major center for worshipping another god. And so that was uh, one of the things that I had on my list. Another one is, uh, and this is, now we're getting to some of the more, the more famous ones that people will be aware of. Uh, this is the gate at Tel Dan. Uh, the famous Middle Bronze Age arched gate at Tel Dan. It sometimes is called Abraham's Gate because Abram once rescued his nephew Lot from kidnappers near the city of Dan, we're told, in Genesis 14, 14. And this imposing mud brick gate was constructed in the 18th century BC by the Canaanites who were there uh, at the city. It wasn't called Dan at the time. It was called Leshem. And it was uh, this gate is at the eastern side of the city and it survives uh, to to it's it's very impressive uh, it survives to a course of about 47 courses of bricks and at one time uh, featured three enormous arches that framed an entrance to the city there was this great staircase the remains of which can be seen that that led up to the gate 
And um, what's really interesting is it was only used for about 50 years before it was covered by this earthen rampart, which was great for archaeologists because that's what preserved it. And so we're not sure why they covered it up. Now, if you take a literal understanding of the chronology of Abraham's life, the gateway at Tel Dan was likely constructed a couple of centuries after Abraham's death, but I've included it in my list because of its association with him and because it's an example of the gate systems that that Abraham and his sons, the patriarchs, would have been familiar with. And because it bears his name, it's it's on this list. And it depends on on your chronology. I tend to to read uh, the chronology in a literal, straightforward way, and so probably Abraham didn't see that particular gate, but he might have seen a, an earlier gate. They often placed gates in the same spot in the city wall, one after another, on top of another. So that could be perhaps. Hmm. Well, we're seeing uh, uh, for those in our audience, we want to invite to join us for the Shiloh dig, right, Brian? Yes, indeed. Uh, if we do some touring and uh, we try to go to Dan, uh, well, we're seeing, of course, the later period is the the cultic site there that was set up during the Divided Kingdom era. But this early gate is uh, fantastic, just a fantastic discovery and uh, uh, well worth the visit. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, well, let's move on in our, in our list. Yeah. It, it, there's a very famous event that happens in the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. It's what's been called the Battle of Siddim. And, and we read these words, in the days of Amraphel, I'm going to butcher these names, by the way, so I apologize to any Hebrew scholars mm-hmm. who are listening. Uh, in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Elisar, uh, Ketolaramar, the king of Elam, Tidal, the king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, Shemaber, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. They all joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. And it was during this battle that Abraham's nephew Lot was captured and Abraham sets out to rescue him. And there are a number of elements within this text that accurately reflect, as near as we can tell historically, the conditions in the patriarchal era, indicating, and and this is important, what it indicates is that that this is not some later invention, not some hypothetical story that sometimes people say, oh, this Genesis wasn't written in antiquity, in, in, in early antiquity. It was written, you know, after the exile by a supposed group of priests in Persia who were inventing a glorious backstory for their people. But there are elements in this story that, that are hard to explain if that's your explanation of how scripture came to be. First, the names are similar to the kings in this king's account to names that have been found in other Mesopotamian texts that date to this particular period. And it's hard to imagine that someone living 2,000 years later or 1,500 years later or whatever would, would get that particular part right. And secondly, after the fall of the third dynasty of Ur in the late third millennium BC, the area was not dominated by a single power, but by small city-states, and it seems that there were ever-changing political alliances in terms of who controlled localized areas, and this is what's being reflected in this particular text, that these kings of all these these local city-states get together in two different groups, uh, coalitions, to go at each other. Price and Holden note that the, uh, the antiquity of this account 
within the larger context of the patriarchal narratives indicates there is a substantial reason to regard the whole as historically accurate. And so, little elements in the story of the Battle of Siddim, which have been affirmed by other writings historically, seem to indicate that there is there is historical truth to this, and I believe there is. Yeah, I think... I think Brian, right. We don't have the exact Kings. We don't have like that kind of precision, but what you're talking about is a background that's consistent, really the impossibility of a redactor getting this kind of thing right many centuries after the fact, something you and I have talked about many times on the TV show and on the podcast puts it in historical context. Very fascinating, you know, of Abraham, a rich man and a man able to, to, you know, uh, engage in this kind of thing. Uh, uh, we don't know a lot about his life in uh, Ur before his migration to Canaan, but certainly um, a man of some stature or or developed into a man of some stature to be involved in something like this. So really, really fascinating. Great, great story. Great story of redemption of Lot. Uh, just, just love it, but fits the context well. And I was looking at uh, some of your stuff on here on your website, Brian. I didn't remember reading this before, but this was the Battle of Sidon was, or Sidon was the also known as the Battle of Nine Kings. Like that, I don't know. That makes me kind of think of the Lord of the Rings. I was going to say like, very Tolkienian, of, isn't it? I I wonder if Tolkien was reading this particular passage, um, or well, had it in mind when he was writing uh, the Great Battle in in the Lord of the Rings. You said a name of the king of, and it reminded me of Lord of the Rings. Uh, Elisar, you said. Yeah. Uh, isn't that isn't yeah. what uh, uh, in the movie Aragorn hears uh, that whispered voice, Elisar, right? Yep. Numerous times. Yep. So anyway, but, we we might be stretching it, but it is it is an interesting. I mean, Tolkien drew on the biblical text, so yeah. But also, I mean, just I mean, you already said it, Brian. But just the fact that there was all these kings and all these names, and like if it was really, I mean, a battle of nine kings, all these different, like that would have been remembered, notated, and it's in the biblical text, but. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. It shows you, too, the city-state system. I mean, that goes all the way down to the time of the book of Joshua in Canaan, yeah. right? So, you know, if you can't control a large kingdom, you have smaller kingdoms, balkanized uh, societies, if you want to say it that way, you know, just smaller. Uh, sometimes banding together, sometimes fighting each other. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, I get, we got to keep moving on. I know you've got more to say, Brian. All right. Different well, stuff. What's next? Let's talk about camels. <laughs> domesticated camels. I mean, the Bible says that Abraham had a caravan of camels. His servant took 10 of them when he went north to search for a wife for Isaac. And for some critics, this is this is an incorrect detail. They say that has to be anachronistic. Someone writing later, you know, imagine there were domesticated camels at that time, but but camels weren't domesticated until the late second millennium BC or later. Uh, people are like, no, it wasn't really till the time of David that we had domesticated camels. Really? Um, and huh. so, you know, someone, for example, like Donald Redford says, uh, camels do not appear in the Near East as direct as domesticated beasts of burden until the ninth century BC. So that's that's a that's an interesting idea. However, there is some more recent research which demonstrates that camels were actually domesticated even before the time of Abraham. There are ancient petroglyphs, rock rock diagrams, carvings um, from Egypt uh, and the Wadi Nasib, which depict humans leading camels who are tethered that date 
to the late third, into the third and late second millennium BC. So that's the time of of Abraham. There's a, a late third or early second millennium BC bronze statue of a two-humped Bactrian camel, which appears to have a harness. It's in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. There are artistic representations um, throughout the Near East. In fact, Titus Kennedy concludes in, in, on his website, bones, hair, wall paintings, models, inscriptions, seals, documents, statues, uh, Stella from numerous archaeological sites, all suggest that camels were in use as domesticated animal in the ancient Near East as early as the third millennium BC. In actual fact, domesticated camels gave their owners a great uh, economic advantage and if you think about how Abraham is portrayed in Scripture as a man of of great wealth, um, this would th- that would fit with what we see. We would expect someone like him, we might say, to own camels. And so the idea that camels that were domesticated and used to uh, carry burdens it didn't happen until much later, the time of David, is actually is, is not accurate, frankly. There, there's just too much evidence historically, archaeologically, that suggests that people were using them in that way, even a little before the time of Abraham. Yeah, I remember when I first came to ABR almost 20 years ago, this was a, a very predominant argument that was out there. And over, over the course of the last two decades, there's been a lot of stuff that we've published on this to deal with it. It's kind of funny, you know, the de- domestication of the camel being an argument regarding the hist- historicity of, of the Bible, yeah. right? It sounds so strange, but it's it, it just shows you how uh, how in- fascinating, how, how much God puts the biblical accounts in the context of history and how all these intersections occur with something that would seem to be an esoteric subject, maybe strange even to someone listening, but inter- camels are interesting to us because somebody's tries, trying to use it as a battering, battering ram against the scriptures. So good stuff, Brian. Yeah, it always makes me think of, well, sort of wonder about, well, yeah, who was the first person who decided, hey, that thing over there, I bet you I can get that to pull my plow <laughs> or carry my stuff. <laughs> and same thing too, like with food, like, I don't know, I'm not, I mean, I like some seafood, but I don't know who was the first person that's like, yes, that crab with those claws. I wonder if I could eat that. Like, how hungry did they have to be to be the first person to be like, hey, lobsters, this dinosaur, like, let's eat that thing, like, with those claws <laughs> and that exoskeleton. Like, I, I don't know. So, yeah, all that kind of stuff comes to my mind. Who was the first dude who was like, I think I could use this for something? Yeah, like, it is kind of counterintuitive with the big hump on there, isn't it? A horse makes more sense. Well, I mean, did they have horses <laughs> in that region? I don't, I, I don't know. If I think of desert, I think of camels and, you know, yeah. but it may have been more fertile where Abraham was. And, yeah, it's just, I, yeah, I don't know. Good stuff. Good stuff, Brian. All right. Well, let's, let's move on. Uh, the next one is a very famous tomb painting. It is a painting in the tomb of uh, Knumotep II at Beni Hassan. It's called the famous uh, Beni Hassan tomb painting. And it, it depicts these Asiatic merchants coming into Egypt. Now, let's set the stage here. The book of Genesis describes uh, the nomadic lifestyle of the patriarchs, and it reports that there were people moving, migrating from Canaan to Egypt— Abraham does in Genesis 12, 11. Jacob and his sons do in Genesis 42. And so it seems that whenever there was a famine in the land of Canaan, 
some of the Canaanites would go to Egypt, and we know from from this tomb painting, for example, that there was trade going on. It wasn't just in time of famine. There was trade going on back and forth. And so there is this painting in this tomb uh, at Beni Hassan, and now it dates to about 1890-1900 BC, and it portrays this group of 37 Asiatics, that's what we would call people from Canaan, and they're traveling to Egypt to do trade. And it's evidence of this migration pattern in the Middle Bronze Age that we see described in the Bible. And what's really interesting is it's getting really close to the time of Abraham, and so it, it is a vivid depiction of what Abraham and his descendants may have looked like, how they dressed when they came in to Egypt. Our friend Gary Byers notes that both the biblical patriarchs and the Beni Hassan Asiatics traveled from the same region, Syria-Palestine, to the same region, Egypt, during the same period, the 20th to 19th centuries BC. And while no one proposes that these are Israelites, it is the right people, the right place, the right time to offer great insights into the world of biblical characters and, and what they may have looked like. Hmm. Yeah, those depictions too in the in the Beni Hassan tomb painting. I think we did a whole episode with Gary of Digging for Truth TV on that tomb, if I remember correctly. That's worth looking up on our YouTube channel. They're, they're distinctively drawn uh, in a different way than Egyptians are, so we know this from from the way that they're uh, there, are a lot of details in that in that too. That's worth looking at online. You can find that on Wikipedia, Benny Hassan tomb painting. So that's that's really, really, it's a really cool thing. fits fits like a glove, Brian, as we would say. Yep. As I always say, isn't it interesting? We have this description <laughs> of people moving from Canaan to Egypt, and now we have this painting of people coming from Canaan to Egypt. Isn't it interesting? I like that. And and too, I know you already you made the point, but of like, even though this is an Egyptian painting of something happening, because Egyptians considered these Asiatics, you know, they weren't Egyptians, so they depicted them completely different. So it's not like a painting of of Egyptians that you know look like hieroglyphic Egyptians that you know we would in my, come to my mind, but they depict them differently because they were a different. People Eth group. People group, a yep, different ethnicity. Yep, so yep. they they make them look, dress them differently. And it's just, yeah, it's, even though it's in Egypt, it's not Egyptians. Plus with that particular painting, I believe you also have the inscription, <laughs> which tells you where they're from and they're coming to ah. trade and what they're coming to trade. So you have you have the, the hieroglyphic inscription that goes along with it so that you know, oh, okay, these are these people. I think one of the things that they were coming to trade was I ointment or something like that, that that's mentioned in there. And so, yeah, it's a very, wow. very helpful painting for us to to bring the biblical world from the time of Abraham to life. Uh, almost like what you would consider to be a photograph. That's what I was just going to say. It's the closest thing, yeah. probably. The best thing that they could produce yeah. regarding it. Probably idealized in some ways because you can do that with painting. But still, great, good stuff. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, the next the next uh, thing on our list here is is the Mari tablets. Now, Mari was a, a thriving city for over a millennium. So, from about twenty eight hundred BC to seventeen sixty BC, it, it was the capital of the Amorites, uh, or at least from two thousand to seventeen sixty BC. Which, again, you're getting right in the the time of Abraham there, right? That two thousand BC range. There were excavations which began there in nineteen thirty three, and they found this massive archive of cuneiform tablets from these cities' final years. And as they translated them, they discovered that 
that there were a number of uh, letters and treaties and literary works, and, and scholars were able to get this glimpse into the the world uh, at that time, the social, economic, and legal practices there. And it helps us to understand Amorite history, but also the broader culture in which the Old Testament events occurred. And so now, largely the tablets, because they date to the end of that city's era, are, are largely dealing with a time frame after Abraham. But they reflect some of those longstanding cultural traditions that are from the patriarchal era. So, for example, the Mari tablets reveal that if a concubine bore the first son, his birthright could be withdrawn if the primary wife subsequently borrowed a son or bore a son. And so so what you have is is the first thing that comes to my mind when I read that, right, is is the story of of Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn, but but Isaac was the the promised uh, son. And so but it fits with what we see there. There are several places related to Abraham also mentioned in the Mari texts, uh, the city of Hauran, for example, that we've already mentioned. Uh, and so just helpful for us to understand some of those, uh, the social rules, the social values of that time, which which were longstanding traditions and, and seem to reflect even the world of the patriarchs that we read in the book of Genesis. Yeah, I guess maybe we should have talked about that a little bit more too in the beginning, but when we talk about the the patriarchs, the patriarchal era, what are some of the things that kind of encompass that? Like, like is it just one guy who was in charge of everything? Like, how did that kind of work in general? Like, so Abraham would have been one of these guys. Like, what what, what when you just when you say he's one of the patriarchs, what does that mean? Uh, I'll comment a little, and then you can go ahead, Brian, and add anything to it. I think broadly speaking you know, the eldest one in the family. You see this with Jacob, you know, you kind of, at, at his deathbed is sort of passing the baton, yeah. uh, right? It's a very, very important part of the way that the family structure works, even in his relationship with his sons, when, you know, when he thinks Joseph is dead, right? The way that he relates to them, but the authority that he carries. Of course, this term is used very negatively in the modern day, the patriarchy yeah. and all that. Yeah. But really, it's just a, a structure of society. And really, is a little foreign to us in the Western society, yeah. but but in many places of the world, this is still kind of a way of thinking about honor culture, for example. Uh, we use the term matriarch sometimes too, even uh, if you want to use a modern analogy. So typically the patriarchal era uh, we think of is from Abraham uh, to Joseph. Yeah. Uh, is is typically, although technically the men who lived before Abraham probably could be put in the broad category of patriarchs going all the way back to Shem to the flood. So yeah, it's just a broad scope. Brian, you want to add anything to that? Yeah. I mean, just to touch on what you said on the end there, that, you know, when I think of the patriarchal era, I think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the the, the people who lived in Genesis, that time frame we're talking you know the intermediate bronze age the middle bronze age those are that's kind of the the general era in which we're talking and and for people who who like to um, oftentimes when I talk to to my wife for example I'll say something middle bronze age she'll go okay so remind me which which bible character are we talking right if i if i talk about <laughs> iron iron age well which bible character is that because that's how a lot of people think right a lot of people who read the bible they don't think in terms of the archaeological time periods they think in terms of of 
of which Bible character. So we're talking about largely the Bible characters in the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Those are, that's kind of what we mean when we refer to the patriarchal era. And I think from what I've learned a little bit before is, so like the patriarch, he's the top dude in this large family of he's got his sons, their wives, their kids, their servants, their goats, their herds, and they all travel together. And like, he's kind of the top guy. And then it passes down to the next one. And then he's the top guy. And now it's his tribe and his people, his flocks, his whatever. And they kind of have this generational wealth that's built up and goes with them wherever they go. Am I is that another way of look, thinking about it? Like that's yeah, my understanding. Yeah, and, and I would say not just the generational wealth, but also the responsibility that goes along with that in terms of mm. caring for and overseeing, you know, all of all of that and and particularly the families that are involved. I think of when Lot is kidnapped, it's Abraham who gets his people together and his his war band and 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 leads the charge up to rescue him. So there's a responsibility factor that goes along with that when you are the patriarch of the family. Hmm. Interesting. Well, speaking of patriarchs, the next one on the list is the tomb of the patriarchs uh, at Hebron. <laughs> hmm. So when Abraham's wife died, Abraham's wife Sarah died, he purchased a cave, a burial cave, um, and the field of Machpelah from Ephron the Hittite. We're told that in Genesis 23. And the Bible records that Sarah, Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, Leah, and Jacob were all buried in this cave. If you, if you look through scripture, you've got, you've got all of these people listed, Sarah uh, and Abraham, Genesis 25, Isaac, Genesis 35, Rebekah, Genesis 49, Leah, Genesis 49, Jacob, Genesis 50, all said that they're buried in this cave, and, and given its importance, the Israelites would have remembered its location throughout the ages. And a monumental structure was built over this site, the site that was believed to be this cave, the cave of the patriarchs, the burial cave of the patriarchs and their wives. It was built there during the reign of Herod the Great. And so the big structure that you see there today at Hebron, the, the tomb of the patriarchs, is this large Herodian building that is there. And inside there are six medieval cenotaphs that commemorate the burials of the patriarchs and the matriarchs inside here. And, and the, the reality is the current political situation precludes proper excavation there. Although there are some very interesting documented adventures where people had clandestine trips down into the cave below. And recently, some of the pottery vessels that were taken from there during this clandestine incursion in 1981 were dated. And they were dated to the Iron Age, which suggests that in the first temple era, that people were visiting, uh, pilgrims were visiting the cave of Macpala, the this cave of the patriarchs, um, and, and it was being venerated in the Iron Age period. And, and so... Uh, it, just an, an ancient site and an interesting connection to what scripture says about uh, the tomb or the cave where the patriarchs were buried. Brian, do we know if the Iron Age pottery is more of a specialized kind of pottery or is it uh, d just plain domestic stuff? Do we do we know that? I think the pictures I saw showed it pretty plain domestic stuff. Okay. Um, yeah. The, at least the pictures that that I've seen, and I haven't seen a lot of it. Just uh, the one report that came out. Um, Interesting. So, yeah. 
we have the site venerated 2,000 years ago in the time of Herod. So must be, uh, obviously the connection is there enough yeah. to build a thing. And he's, he's trying to make nice with the Jewish population by doing this. This exactly. is kind of like his shtick, yeah. right? He kills them, but he also makes nice with them. It's <laughs> such a great <laughs> yes. enigma, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But, and then Iron Age pottery, which could point to veneration from a thousand years before that. Yes. But we don't have much more than that because we can't dig there. Exactly. But this, this is a, uh, if the political situation shifts, and you never know if it will, it could be 100 years from now or whatever, that's a, a candidate for somebody to get their hands in there and see if they can find something that goes back further. Yep. And, and now, again, I, I, I come back to, I go, isn't it interesting? The Bible yeah. talks about this cave where the patriarchs were buried, and we know that there is a cave system underneath this structure. People have been into it and documented it, even got uh, some, of the, some of the pottery vessels that were left in there. Just isn't it interesting? This is, this is what we have. Does that mean that that's it? No, not necessarily, but isn't it interesting that we have this major site that is, that is attached to Abraham's life that seems to have been venerated uh, over a very long period of time? Now, if I remember right, Henry, you talked to Joel Kramer about isn't there another archaeological excavation that has been going on near Hebron and they've been finding these tree stumps like ancient from the trees of Mamre yeah and, uh, and, holes in the limestone where the, there were big tr- where there were clearly trees that had grown the trees are gone but, but it doesn't the bible mention that when Abraham went to Hebron. It was near these trees. That's right. And That's so right. you went- and, and then there's a whole archaeological profile that goes back very far at that at that location that you can kind of peel. We did a whole episode with Joel on that on his, but we featured that part of it. Brian, maybe you want to add some more to that. I'm I'm being very general in my comments. You familiar with that? Sorry, I, I got nothing on that topic. I'm not uh, not familiar with it. Other than I've yeah. seen I've seen Joel's uh, video on it. Um, and I think he makes a compelling case for that being, I think the Oaks of Mamre, um, at Hebron. Um, but, but other than that, I'm, I'm not too sure about that. So in, in the case of that, it, it looks like the way that Joel traces that out, we've got more chains in the line of evidence than we do with the tomb of the patriarchs. Exactly. We've got different eras with different occupations and they go all the way, they go back really far. So, and then you get down to the limestone and you have these holes where these trees grew. So that's just so, you know, it's just so compelling. It, isn't it interesting? Yes, exactly. <laughs> maybe I should maybe I should update my list to add that because that's, uh, I think Joel, I, I watched his video not that long ago on it and I, I thought he made a very compelling case for that particular site. Yeah, and, and you know, I feel you, you feel confident. Joel, Joel's great because he's a filmmaker, but he also is an archaeologist, so, you know, he's done his homework. So he do, he's careful, I, I think. So I, I'm intrigued by it. I think it's worth looking at. Yeah. And, and for something that, and I don't know if that Hebron was known for its trees, like maybe Lebanon is famous for its, you know, cedar trees, which I don't, those don't exist anymore, do they? Aren't the tr- cedars of Lebanon gone? Uh, as far as I know. Okay, we can cut this out. But like, <laughs> I, I even know, like, I think the general, that's on their flag. Like they're known for the cedars yeah. of Lebanon, but they don't have them anymore. So maybe some, this is something similar. I, I'm not, yeah, I'd be interested to know more about it sometime. So maybe- yeah. Yeah, that book's called uh, uh, Where God Came Down, The Archaeological Evidence. Interesting. All right. Uh, the next thing on the list is called is, is a site called The Enclosure of Abraham, and it's on uh, the Pharaoh Shoshank's 
topographical list at Karnak or, or the biblical Pharaoh Shishak. Uh, he invaded the lands of Judah and Israel in 926 BC. And when he returned to Egypt, he did what all the pharaohs did. He created this glorious monument on the side of a wall at the great temple of Amon-Re at Karnak. And he boasted of having conquered 150 places. And each place is a name ring depicted as a a prisoner bound um, with a cartouche underneath it with a toponym on it um, in Egyptian hieroglyphics. And one of the ovals located just below and to the left of, of uh, Shishak's foot. There's this gigantic image of Shishak conquering his foes. It reads, the fort or enclosure of Abram. And this place was located in the Negev, which is a region that Abraham frequented. We're told that in Genesis 12.1, Genesis 13.1, Genesis 21. And it would fit well with a na- place being named after him. So this is the only, by the way, ancient extra-biblical reference to Abraham. So it's a very important thing. If if it does indeed refer to the biblical Abraham, and I believe it does, it makes sense that that would be named after him. And so uh, a thousand years after Abraham lived, we have this location that seems to have still borne the name, the fort or the enclosure of Abraham when Pharaoh Shishak came in and and attacked Israel. Wow. Brian, how, have you seen anything about how the skeptics deal with that? I I'm not as familiar with this particular one. I mean, we've talked about this before, but it escaped my uh, my feeble mind. Uh, this is intriguing to me because we're talking 925 BC-ish? Yeah, right? 926 BC. and 926? Yeah. I'm not sure how they deal with it other than, I mean, the, the big question is, is that the Abraham, the Abram, Abraham of, of the Bible? Right, yeah, and and right, all right, we would right. have to to point to that is okay. The just based on the geography of the name rings in that location, it would be in the Negev region. We have biblical um, verses, Bible verses that seem to indicate that that Abraham frequented that particular area. So we would point to that as evidence. Now it's circumstantial evidence, so we can't sure, prove a hundred percent that this is that Abram, but it makes sense. And it's important enough for the king to point out that he conquered it. So that, you know, now for what reason? Was it because of a symbolic significance to the Israelites, because of its military significance, because of its domestic, uh, uh, cosmopolitan, whatever it might be, uh, there's a reason why uh, he included it. We don't know the reason, but it made its way into the list. So it must have been important enough to say, yeah, here's my, what did you say? A hundred and some, hundred and- 150 places. 150 places, and this made the list. Yep. So that's pretty, that's fascinating. That's worth exploring further. Yeah. I, I don't have time to do that, but I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, is it is it is it written as Abraham or Abram, the shorter Abram, version? The shorter form, Abram. That See, that's interesting too. Now that just might be a language issue and- I might be making too much of it because we know about the name change that occurs in Genesis 17. You know, in other words, is there some kind of veneration that took place that's really old there with this site? So that would be an intriguing question. Somebody to look at it linguistically to see if you can get anything out of that. Yeah, exactly. So sometimes more questions than answers with archaeology, right, Brian? Exactly. Well, we come to what I think is probably the most important find related to Abraham. One of the most defining moments in his life was when the Lord called him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Uh, 
And so in Genesis 22, 2, we read that God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Now, this region of Moriah is now covered by the modern day city of Jerusalem. And Mount Moriah itself is the Temple Mount, the place where David built an altar to stop a plague, the place where Solomon later built the temple. And and if you have not yet read uh, Joel Kramer's book, Where God Came Down, he traces the history of Mount Moriah through these different periods uh, beautifully. And he helpfully points out that neither Abraham nor David chose this location. The Lord was the one who directed both of them to this place. And um, today, all that's visible of Mount Moriah is the rock outcropping within the Islamic shrine known as the Dome of the Rock. And if you're not Muslim, you can't get in to see it, but there are photographs of it that you can see. Uh, Lean Rittmeyer has observed the the remains of, of a foundation trench on this rock, which would have served, he believes, as the foundations uh, of the southern wall of the temple. And Lane also calculated a 20-cubit square flat space on the rock, which corresponds, he believes, to the measurements of the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple, and, and also noted a rectangular indentation on the rock in the middle of, uh, the, in the middle of a square, which, which may have been where the Ark of the Covenant stood. And so Mount Moriah is this place where God provided for Abraham a ram in place of Isaac, It's the place where God filled the first temple during the days of Solomon, where the curtain of the second temple was torn when Jesus died. Um, It's the place of sacrifice. It's the place of atonement. And so a hugely important site and hugely important for what it it represents. And that is the, the God providing a sacrifice. Yeah, the theology there is so rich, I, I almost feel like I'm not going to do it justice by making any comments on it, Brian, because you did such a good job of of tracing that out. I think I, I think it's inter- it's interesting to see the how God th- this speaks to his sovereignty and and of of the way that he has orchestrated history in such a way to make these events all come together in the way that you just described. I think that's a way of of thinking about it. The sovereignty of God can can frighten us in some ways because it means our life, very life is in God's hands, right? And at the same time gives us comfort, right? It's a, it's a place of, 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 of righteous fear and comfort. And he does this in history, like this place. And I love the way that you, because Jesus doesn't, isn't sacrificed there. He's sacrificed outside the city, but the, the, the veil and the temple is torn from top to bottom, right? So, uh, okay, he sacrificed outside the city, but here we go again, right at that same place where Isaac was spared and God provides again. It's just a beautiful, beautiful picture and just gives us such a, uh, the theology, the typology, the history all converges on this very spot. Appropriate that you've had it as number one in my book. Yep. Well, listen, uh, Maybe to, to wrap up, here's kind of how I, I look at things. Archaeologically speaking, the farther back in history you go, generally, the more fragmented it becomes. Um, we know less about the patriarchal era, for example, than we do about the Roman era. And so, um, sure. but despite that, there are numerous finds that demonstrate the story or the account of Abraham's life accurately records the cultural elements, 
and places from that particular time period. And I think that this affirms the antiquity of the narratives in Genesis. And I think it would contradict the claims that the story of Abraham was a fabrication of a later group of priests living in the Babylonian exile yes. or, or later. I, I just, there are too many culturally specific details that the writer got right. That I, I, it's a bridge too far for me to say uh, someone writing later uh, in a totally different part of the world, you know, over a thousand years later, would have been able to nail all of those um, those particular uh, cultural elements correctly. So, so I believe that Abraham was a real man. He lived at a real place and time in history, just as the Bible describes, and. He's, his faith in God is what was credited to him as righteousness. And, and as such, that became he became the father of all who believe. Romans 4 is a beautiful chapter that talks about how, how just as, as um, God credited righteousness to Abraham, he also will credit righteousness to us if we put our faith in him. And, and I think that that's, that's, for me, probably the biggest lesson I see from Abraham's life. Yeah, Brian, that was so good that— the necessity of Abraham for New Testament theology, I think, is part of what you're getting at. Over 40 references to Abraham in the New Testament, and almost every aspect of the major events of his life, circumcision, his call, the sacrifice of Isaac, on and on and on. It goes to his genealogy. All You know, it's, it's so embedded in the theology of the New Testament, just like the Exodus is. And uh, you just can't escape from it. And the New Testament authors certainly saw Abraham as being the father of faith. And as Jesus famously said, before Abraham was born, I am. So rich, rich, rich stuff. And uh, appreciate all the work you've done on it, Brian. It was fantastic. Thanks so much, guys. I I love getting together with you to chat about archaeology. Let's do this again sometime. Yeah. All right. Amen. You can find photos of all the things we talked about at BibleArchaeologyReport.com in an article Brian wrote about all these things. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And also, if you're enjoying listening to these episodes, if you wouldn't mind giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, it helps the algorithm or whatever get more people to find us in rankings and search results and that kind of stuff. So, plus we just enjoy getting the feedback. So it's helpful. So that's all we have for today. Until next time. Digging for Truth is a presentation of the Associates for Biblical Research. To find out more about ABR, just go to BibleArchaeology.org.